The Puritan's Guide to Fall Songs Guide. I was really annoyed, really, you know. Tonight's song is... In My Area by The Fall. It was released as the B-side to Roush Rumble, uh, released July 30th, 1979. And Bob and I are uh, glad to have as a guest uh, Bill Gaffier from The Embarrassment and uh, Big Dipper and several other bands. I think if I'm guessing that's right, Bill, but Bill is the one who picked yeah. uh, in my area. I was doing some research on the fall because I do that for this podcast. And then I, it was around the time that I had seen the documentary uh, that just came out about the embarrassment. And I, ah. you are, or, or no, I think it might've been the actual, like on some social media, uh, the, the dudes who were, you know, hyping the documentary had, posted something about an interview with you from the early 80s in which you said you really liked the fall or you'd been listening to the fall a lot lately so do you remember what how you first ran into not literally the fall like was it on like was it somebody let you borrow a record was it like kj uh which is the radio station at ku for those who aren't from kansas and uh or or how'd you get how'd you get there that's a good question um, because, well, I was living in Wichita, so I, I didn't listen. I didn't hear much of anything on the radio like that. Right. But um, I was um, keeping up really well through, um, oh, through the magazines and, and even like the the weeklies, the the, the British music weeklies. Uh, actually, we could pick up here in town at a at a. A, a very well-stocked magazine stand had um, Melody Maker and um, and Sounds, I think, at the time. Uh, so it was, you know, a, a good way to read um, reviews. Sure. Uh, um, and you know, yeah. I, I'm not sure what connected me to the the first fall. 45 or even when that came out was that 78 was was this roush rumble you mentioned that it was really released in the summer of 79 yeah i think which, which is, I, th I think roush rumble is the first one really i think so if it is, is it, that's interesting i was trying to think if they're like what would have come before that um because i bought the actual i'm look i'm looking at the cover of it um reproduced yeah, you know, I, I did a little reading to re kind of remind myself and put things in context. And I recognized the the very simple kind of hand done layout of the, the front and back cover and just black and white. So I knew that I had that 45 and I thought it was I, I really appreciated that it was so um very personally done you know and no sign of any sort of commercial commerciality to it or right, right. Uh, label gloss to it you know and i like that it was just this paper um just like one step above somebody pretty much hand writing out all the information <laughs> you know it, it's got so evidence of a typewriter so uh, i found out uh this is their second one so i was wrong okay. about that uh it's what the new the thing Okay. Uh, well, Bigger Masters Breakout came out before that. Sorry, this was their third. Oh, oh yeah. the third. What? I, I, was kinda, I was vaguely kind of thinking something like oh, that. That's right. so I, I don't I don't know for sure that I bought them as they came <laughs> out or if I had to backtrack, but I know I had all those 45s and I, I was 
Gosh, I, I was uh, more excited about those than I think the first album of theirs that I got. Um, although I I was really into like the the Slate EP, which came out a little mm. bit a little bit later, maybe a few years later, right around the time that we ended up playing some shows with with the Fall, and, and that was like a, that was. Um, exciting as a fan you know that, that was a th thrilling type experience because i was kind of starstruck by them <laughs> by, by that point although you know they, they were these were just club shows but to me they were um you know something really special and kind of larger than life uh so th but those early 45s you know i would put a lot of time into digesting them but um but I guess, you know, the question was, like you asked, I, I don't know what made me first pick them up, except that um, at that time, maybe it was easy enough to keep up with pretty much all the the British post-punk releases that were coming out. And so right. anything I could get my hands on, uh, but it would vary between ordering them through some catalog service and having them delivered or driving up to Lawrence um if not Kansas City and and then just going through the bins and seeing what they had managed to stock so yeah. you know it, it could very well be that I just happened to to find it put my hands on it and think well I know this is one of the the cool bands I've been reading about uh next group of uh bands uh, noteworthy that they were from manchester you know it was probably a fairly small group of manchester bands all of which i thought were worthy of attention so well i'll try this out and it was <laughs> unique enough you know their sound was immediately unique enough to be memorable I, uh by that point i think i appreciated the fact that they were not an they weren't a punk rock sounding band i, I was uh, I'm not that excited about, you know, any more bands coming out of England that were just punk rock bands or kind of it, trying to be in the mold of uh, the the Sex Pistols or 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 something. And they were ne they'd never measure up as writing as the, like the songwriting would never quite be as good or hooky or catchy or anything. So the fall having this distinctive sound was was intriguing to me to try to figure out what was, what was the appeal of that because there's something very immediate very fresh and um uh, almost uh, pl well playful almost um improvisational which isn't something that typically uh, attracts my listening uh mm -hmm. like i'm not like a improvisational jazz listener or anything like or and jam bands don't particularly interest me that much so i think i was trying to just process a lot of like what what is going on here there's something i like a lot of the times and other times it's, it would it'd be kind of off-putting or just kind of hard to break through to what what was going on where was the order of of it in within all the the noise making and the energy and stuff you know where where was the logic and the structure that i was sure. seeing so what was this like uh 
being a fan of the fall and like loving those those first singles was this something you shared with uh the other guys in the embarrassment yeah and it seemed like um pretty quickly everybody was in agreement on that although hmm. i have to say as far as i know i was the only one that was actually buying their records but that may have been the case with the, with a lot of the stuff it um not everybody necessarily, you know, had to go out and buy the vinyl and own the records. Um, you know, there were, there was enough people making comp cassettes and sharing, you know, handing stuff to their friends and stuff. And so I think I was the most, um, the most record collector at the time. Uh, I'm not that way anymore at all, but, um, and I don't even have any of those fall records for sure, but, uh, at the time, I just I wanted to physically have that stuff. I liked I liked it in my hands that way. Mm -hmm. And everybody seemed to appreciate what they were doing um, pretty quickly. Certainly by the time we ended up playing with them, I, I think everybody in the band was was impressed with them as a band. And even our, our sound man, our, our friend Jim. Um, and he he still tells a lot of stories to this day and shares a lot of memories of that because he he was such a huge fan and they even had him doing sound for them i think uh, on some of those occasions just because he was there and he knew it was like between him and the house sound man apparently they weren't traveling with their own sound man probably a big expense for them at that time yeah that must have that must have been the reasoning. I can't think of any other reason why he he ended up getting recruited. It's like, oh yeah, I know you get, yeah, I know you guys. Music. I'm a huge fan. So and I run, you know, he's doing our sound. So they were like, well, will you will you do our sound? Sure. I mean, I'd wow. be honored, thrilled. So. so how many shows did you all end up playing with the Fall? I mean, how did and how did that all come together? I it may have only been a couple because you know when I think about specific ones and i'm the worst person to ask about like <laughs> show history you know and sure, uh, sure. i know this this is a pattern well-known pattern but just lately having um had some things come to mind and and talking to different people um i know that we played in oklahoma city hmm. with them which was an, an odd place for them to end up anyway so we were yeah. <laughs> supporting them and i think it it helped that that I think maybe we were a little more of a known quantity, a known band, even at that point. But we also uh, got to open for them for a, a, a pretty big um, Chicago show, which I know we still have some flyers. Uh, it, it, it was it was heavily promoted, and it was also noteworthy because it was the gig where um, Mark E. Smith met Bricks after that. Or, or, oh. or on that on that date because uh, I always remember that we ended up at a house party over at the guy who um, probably brought them to town. He was probably the, the biggest Chicago Fall fan, and he also put out a local fanzine at the time called Coolest Retard, and the Fall would be on the cover, and you know we we occasionally got some some good press and photos in there too. So you know. He liked us. Maybe, maybe he saw some kind of similarity or, or something that, about us. So I think he put that show together and, you know, had us specifically uh, get to 
open for the fall on that show. But at back at his house at the party, you know, everybody was was milling around except Mark was obviously nowhere to be found. And I started hearing rumblings of like, oh, he met this he met this girl, this woman at the show. He's hanging out. He, he's hanging out with this. I don't know if they called her a groupie, you know, or anybody was kind of trying to describe it that way. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, I met this woman and he's hanging out with and and turned out that was the beginning of their relationship, I guess. Wow, you're almost a witness to history there, Bill. Um, almost. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had like seen. Yeah, I can't think I ever saw them together. Um, so is this? I don't think I. Oh, I was just wondering if this was when. Go ahead. <laughs> so I'm guessing Stephen Hanley that was probably playing bass at this point, and because I okay. think uh, possibly, right? yeah. Or what's that? You're saying this was like Slate's era fall. Yeah, because uh, Jim, Jim, the sound man I was talking about, our, our friend Jim Rosencutter was mentioning something on his Facebook page referring to uh, the, the show in Oklahoma City. I think he said that they were playing material from Slates, but it hadn't come out yet. So that's that's how detail oriented he is. Like he knew, <laughs> right. he knew like, oh, well, these songs were in the set, but they actually weren't available yet. I would have said I would have thought that I was really familiar with the songs on Slates by the time we saw them play those those songs and yeah. so maybe both happened you know maybe maybe in between the times that we played with them maybe that record came out because i i loved that and i i thought that i you know had the uh the fun experience of you know being able to see them play a lot of those songs live having already gotten familiar with them wow by then so but, so, oh, I have so many questions now, but um, <laughs> yeah, so playing in a, seeing the fall play to a, to a crowd in Oklahoma City, I mean, how, how, that, how did they go over, or did they go over? Well, you know, see, I, I don't, I didn't pay any attention to that. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you guys should set up a, an interview with Jim, actually, but um, sure. uh, it may be that, you know, well, for one thing, my focus if if we're playing in a show, I'm always really distracted and having to focus on uh, being ready to play the show. You know, I've got a job to do and, you know, I didn't just take it for granted. So I would be obsessing over making sure that we were going to play our set and and all that. But of course, by the time they played, we would have been done. Um I assume I I at least made a point of being able to not having to not not have to be back in a dressing room or doing something other than watching their show. But I probably was just so focused on watching them play. It didn't matter to me what what the audience was like, if there was an audience, you know, (laughs) how how appreciative they were uh, or if it it might just seem like a routine Oklahoma club audience, you know, kind of sure. what we had just come to expect. I mean, they were good. They were, they would be supportive when we had good shows in Oklahoma. You know, we were used to playing, um, well, we had played, uh, um, where the pistols played Kane's ballroom. We had played with, um, with John Cale. Wow. Like, 
in 19, uh, I think in 79, maybe. So that was, you know, before this fall thing. So we had, we would go down there fairly regularly and knew that it was going to be pretty good. Somehow, I guess we just had built a following or there were enough cool people that would support coming to see a band doing original music or, you know, maybe even they were buying some of our records at that point. And, um, and it was fine. It, oh. it wasn't, it wasn't a weird place to go at all. It wasn't like going to Nebraska or something. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> well, how, how was it interacting with the members of the band? Uh, well, I, I can narrow that down. I only really um, had any quality time that I remember with um, the guitarist Craig Scanlon. Ah. And um, I'm, I think he was a pretty long-standing member of the band. Yeah, he was. Uh, and did he had a brother in the band, too, I think, didn't he? Um, uh, or, or Hanley Brothers, but... That's Hanley. Hanley. Yeah, you're right. Scanlon, yeah. okay. It was just him, and he was pretty much rhythm guitar. Yeah, would you say not? If if you could say there was a lead guitarist, I don't know, but um, yeah, that was probably the Scanlon yeah. Mark Riley era. So yeah, yeah. and um, he, you know, he was a more approachable. I think there was just a point where we maybe had some downtime in a dressing room after sound checks or something, and. Um, I was still too intimidated really to, to try to talk to too many people, but somehow we, we um, had a little bit of a conversation and I made sure I gave him a copy of, of um, whatever we had some music mm -hmm. to take home with. It might've been our, Oh no, let's see. That wouldn't have been even available yet. I'm not sure what I was, would have been able to give him, but um, I ended up getting a postcard later from him when he got back home Hmm. I was really pleasantly surprised. I got a, a, a postcard from England by uh, signed by him, and I still I'm sure I have that in my files here somewhere. Um, and he was very complimentary about the music, but he made sure he he he, made, he had to make a point of saying that that he thought the name of the band was terrible. Kind <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, <laughs> kind of flow, I think, and. There you. I mean, are you? I mean, it made me question his taste a little bit and his judgment. <laughs> and by that time, I was thinking, like, what do you mean that? But then again, you know, maybe he was right. We needed a name like the Fall. Uh, <laughs> well, certainly easier to spell, but <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what was so bad about the name. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Or maybe he was joking and he had a very, very dry sense of humor. Right. So it went, it went right over my head. I don't know. Because it you know, was all in. <laughs> As I recall, it was in handwriting. Um, but if I find that card, the postcard, and if he didn't actually write that in the card, then I've completely re kind of rearranged the memories and and... I would have to think that, oh, actually, maybe he told me that firsthand in the dressing room and just mm -hmm. spoke that, said, like, like yeah, that's a really bad name for a man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then I'll have to I'll have to think of it that way. But wow. I should 
yeah, I should have tried to find the card, but I got this big tub of of uh, embarrassment archives. Uh-huh. It's wow. not well organized. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so you played with them uh, a few times during your time with the embarrassment. Did did you cross yeah. paths again with them during your Big Dipper days, or was that? Oh no, I don't think that ever would have happened with Big Dipper. Um, and I guess I never had a chance to see them again. But I also, well, no, I, okay, I can still picture when when I relocated to Boston, I was still buying records with bricks on them and, and i remember thinking oh you know they're getting a little bit more commercial sounding kind of poppier and i was still um enjoying some of the singles and stuff but for the most part i wasn't into bands and and the, the new music and the scene i really it was probably for personal um the the need to kind of distance myself from um music activity and focus on art i i really just kind of ignored a lot of that stuff i I just didn't need it and that that actually continued even when i was in big dipper i still was insisting that you know i'm not i'm not into rock (laughs) 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 sorry not for me i'm not listening to that stuff Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I just didn't pay attention. So we should probably uh-huh. get to the song that you chose for this episode at this point. And I was thinking about that. Once you identified the release date and all that, you know, and and we know that it wasn't like the earliest music, but I'm thinking that what stood out about that song to me as the B-side of that single um Kind of an obscure track, mm. I would say, but putting it in '79 means that um, it, it was a it was an instructional um, arrangement and, and 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 track for me to learn from as I was trying to move my guitar playing and songwriting and consideration of of what the embarrassment could do. I was trying to move it way beyond the um, power chords and punk rock structures that we'd been enjoying doing. But uh, knowing that uh, there was a whole lot more to explore, knowing that we had a a little more, more skills and more sensitivities and more range. And we had a certainly had like a good, well, a great, drummer and versatile versatile enough and musical enough drummer that we could be doing many other kinds of sounds uh, and and put together music in different ways and listening to that particular track that that's what spoke to me it wasn't the lyrics which i still you know just barely kind of follow what the narrative is about you know they they suggest they suggest a a kind of outsider perspective, which of course I would still identify with. Then certainly I liked um, the the rebelliousness and the the um, criticism of of the surroundings and and things going on. The commentary 
on whatever it was that was making him so pissed off at the time. <laughs> I, you know, I, I could relate to that to annoyed. And um, so, so I like the tone of the delivery and all that, but it was supported by music that was a lot more intricate sounding um, somewhat detailed, but not, not in not in an academic uh over your head kind of way it didn't seem like it was um the result of you know of, of proper music school learning mm. uh it didn't seem like it was you know classically trained music but it seemed very smartly structured somehow and it, it impressed me because I didn't, I couldn't really uh, just immediately get it and know exactly, oh, like I know exactly what's going on there. Uh, to this day, I'm not sure exactly what's going on with some of the music in there, the, uh, the, the chord, the chord structures. But uh, it gave me inspiration right away to, to want to um, approach some of our songwriting with that kind of open openness the reliance on um well it's gonna say on the rhythm section but actually i don't think there is a whole great presence of rhythm section on that track there's probably more guitar and keyboard yeah along with the mm -hmm. vocals that the drum bass yeah. don't even what's that there's that little synth melody that's kind of driving the whole song that, yeah, to me, to me, that kind of stays in the background and is is a okay. texture. But I guess if you took that away, you know, I, I might, I might have a whole different appreciation for it. I but I think of it as a lesser part. I kind of take that for granted, and, and maybe it just because I'm more guitar focused. Sure. And then I and then I have to ponder the relationship between the guitar and bass right. on that. And I'm still not not real clear on how those roles were divided, but I think there's a there's a good foundation of kind of a high, um, well, somewhat higher register bass. I mean, not particularly high, but but not like this deep bottom kind of mm -hmm. group going. It's just something. It's it's a very repetitious um, phrase that, or a couple of phrases that that fits in there and keeps the song moving along let's let's the guitar start to um, explore a little bit more freely absolutely i think that also these early songs by the fall they didn't so uh i think it's Stephen hanley was the bass player like later after these first few singles and albums right oh um, i think and so and he's much more of a a bass player so i think that like a lot of times at least in these early ones like especially the singles uh, it wasn't as informed just following the roots and i think that like in the early sort of fall stuff it's mainly just the root notes and stuff like that let's see who play yeah who plays the bass on so it looks like it was hanley it was steve hanley playing bass in that was one. it oh well then i'm completely wrong never mind no i mean i think that's what he was kind of doing at that time i think he really started to expand things more once his brother got in the group yeah no that's probably true um i think that's definitely true uh yeah. because that's because that's around the time of 
slate and hex induction hour and all that stuff is when yeah. the two brothers were in it the only thing i was going to mention about the lyrics just it just sounds like he's discussing uh being in a bar like watching some people play pool in an e- economically repressed area of wherever he is you know so it just always reminded me of uh like when he does these sort of character studies it always reminds me a bit of kansas or at least where i grew up in southeast kansas where you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know you well you make you bring up a lot of good um images and, and, to to me and it, that industrial landscape and environment you know even um even for the embarrassment our some of some of our favorite sense of wichita what was north wichita the more industrial area where the, the stockyards were still active right. thinking up the the whole northern part of the city <laughs> and all the crane elevators would you know would describe the the skyline you know they would be the the iconic shapes that that you would see silhouetted and people who weren't familiar with wichita would wonder you know what the hell are those structures what what goes on in the, those buildings because you know they're 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 intimidating looking structures and um and then a lot of railroad tracks just crisscrossing everywhere that you're stopping and waiting for and even when we practiced in the Flatiron building in that part of town you know we're we're just a few feet from the freight uh the freight train tracks going by and you know we'd look out the window and see those grain elevators and right all the industry and that was sort of what we felt like was where we were that was the grit that we liked being being creative in that in that environment trying to make some kind of art in the in the midst of all that like dirt filth and smell and (laughs) and you know toughness and everything And, and i think the fall naturally had that connection mm-hmm. to us too like they seem to have come from that kind of background too yeah 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 i i definitely think that's a definite fault trait i mean he brings up the white crap which is you know a sort of nickname for the fall but also northern northerners in general and this is like the first time he uses it, he uses it later in is it is it called crap rap? Is that what it's yeah. called, Bob? That's yeah, we are we are the northern white crap who talk back. Is how he introduces <laughs> that. Yeah, I mean, for me, the fall at least lyrically, Marky Smith, like all of that stuff, is a big entry point for me. Mm. At least as far as his art goes, is just kind of like I don't know, just being a <laughs> being a white trash kid from southeast Kansas. I can understand, you know. So yeah, it it always kind of made me. Uh, like him a lot more so mm-hmm. so yeah I, I i agree like in wichita i mean i've I've been down in wichita many times like to play kirby's and stuff and uh oh yeah yeah so uh i mean it's been years since i've been there but i think kirby's is still there isn't it oh yeah we just sort of. uh <laughs> just there um in um in what in in may i guess it was my local trio w- without john in the band we call ourselves here the embarrassed men as a, oh, okay. a, a trio but we do we well our job was to learn a set of embarrassment songs so that we were kind of preparing for the lawrence show 
assuming John was going to join us for a while there. We, we didn't even know. So we were going to be prepared to play the Lawrence show as a trio. And I would sing, you know, all of John's parts, but uh-huh. um, it worked out for him to show to, to uh, <laughs> join us. But we, we, uh, we played a Kirby show as one of our warmups and um, it's, it's better than ever. They're actually, they're more equipped to have decent live shows. I mean, they, they used to be strictly an indoor cramped little venue of like uh-huh. legal capacity of like 60 people maybe at the most. Oh, is it that much? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Mekons actually played there in that, in those days. Oh, uh, wow. Okay. Not fall, uh, but which would have been incredible, but somehow the Mekons ended up playing there, I think in the mid eighties after I had moved to Boston. So I only heard about it, you know, through my, friends like like the same jim rosencutter and that we he he was a huge mekons fan as well um as 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 i was and um now kirby's (laughs) outdoor stage kirby's is uh bigger and better than ever so yeah we'll we'll actually be playing again there nice mid-august i know i know like uh kirby's was like if you plug too many things in at the same time, the electricity would go off. And they wouldn't have to Yeah. It was that happened a couple of times when we played there. Yeah. So that's I have fond memories of Kirby's. Uh so anyway. If you took away the uh Wichita State University campus from just north of Kirby's, where it stretches uh, for you know a few square miles there, if you if you removed all that then you would have like a clean, more um, proper extension of that northern Wichita grit. Uh-huh. But unfortunately, that Kirby's is right there at the edge of the campus. So you get more of an academic um, neighborhood, just yeah. border, borderline, borderline. Uh, anyway, I didn't mean to go off on Kansas there for a bit. Ah. To anyone it. listening, I'm into it. <laughs> so my my uh, very probably reductive uh, reading of this song, uh, I liken a lot of the lyrics to uh, the first part of "Howl," the Allen Ginsberg poem, and maybe it's just because I get stuck in that word "madness" being part of the mm. what is kind of the chorus of the song. But it feels like it feels like a similar thing of just like this this recitation of all these like. Um, you know, sort of downtrodden, odd figures that he's that he's seeing. And, you know, if we're talking about this bar, this working class bar, you know, it's not you know these people that you know these you know these mad people that he's surrounded by. And you know, he, I mean, I'm probably going. Uh, what am I saying? I'm probably not talking correctly here. But it feels like there's a lot more sort of pointed commentary in this song as well more than maybe he had done after that just like the reference to to joseph mccarthy and kind of poking fun at the me generation in the lyrics uh, so he doesn't really get hugely political in his songs but these feel very much more specific than than maybe the more vague comments he had made about you know the political state of the uk well I, now go ahead now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. You, both of you guys are very knowledgeable on the fall, like ca- entire catalog. We try sometimes. <laughs> okay. Compared to like me, you know, who was who was was a fan, but was kind of on and off, and you know, hasn't 
thought about it for you know necessarily for a while um so if that's true then i'm also i'm curious of you then how you think um the lyrics and the narrative since that's seemingly like a a bigger of of more interest more more attention um you would give that than the instrumentation itself but how how do you feel that the music in this particular arrangement and the performances and you know how it's done how does that convey or affect the 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 lyrics and the vocal delivery i think that with this song in particular especially with the little piano synth line it's not okay like most things in the fall <laughs> and this is good it's not exactly in tune it's not exactly the right scale you know it sounds a little off usually which okay. is what makes everything great about the fall it's when it comes to music uh is what i think so i really believe like that the 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 lyrics uh are are giving us some character studies of some you know downtrodden uh a bit suspect human beings in this bar wherever they are playing pool or whatever and uh i really think that like the synth line for me is the key to the whole song because mm. it's not it's not like i said it's not a normal key in in key uh hitting the wrong note occasionally it it gives that sort of wobbly feeling to the entire song and music and i think that the lyrics kind of play up on that idea yeah. um, whether that's on purpose or not it doesn't matter because that's what happens when you listen when i listen to it at least but I, I would say like that's part of it and it's definitely a pop song like they had some songs where it was just two different parts or even one part, and he would sing the chorus over the top of one part, you know, verse chorus over the same music line. But I think this one's definitely more of like their popular moments uh, because it's not as hard driving or anything like that. Um, ah, so that's 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 what okay. I would say. Okay, well, I, well, I, I want to hear like an uh, another point of view too, but um, just if I can comment briefly, because so in the grand scheme and in the like the totality of the catalog you would place it in one of the in in, in the group and ma i don't know how big of a group of songs are in the ca in the same category of poppier mm -hmm. more laid back even uh, you didn't say that but um yeah i would actually yeah I yeah i think i think i think laid back's a good one um, cause it's definitely not like Roush rumbles, like, dun, 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 you know, it's like yeah. very upfront. Um, and this one is, is doesn't have that anger forward feel <laughs> of it, at least, you know uh -huh. what I mean? <laughs> and that's, um, probably, that's probably why when I got that 45, I was more attracted to the B side than, yeah. than the A. Cause I just, I'd had kind of enough of that. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I get yeah. it. <laughs> There was, well, just from my own perspective, like in the early 90s, there were all these bands that were screaming and stuff. And I just couldn't, I had to stop listening to a lot of punk rock bands, like hardcore bands, especially no matter how out there they were with what they were playing, just because I couldn't handle anyone screaming anymore for a long time. And it finally ah. just 
getting back to it you know what i mean like at some point in the 90s it was like okay but so i so i guess what i'm saying is i definitely understand that idea of like okay got it <laughs> let's let's move on or something but yeah I that's just can. me personally. go ahead so my feeling is always about the lyrics and marky e. smith's performance of the lyrics and the music they feel like two different tracks at all times throughout the course of the band's history um not that they you you can't you can't have one without the other but um you know i don't think mark is necessarily even considering the music in a lot of ways um i feel like the band has to keep up with him and the way that the melody goes and the way the lyrics go and i only think that because you know he reuses lyrics a lot in other songs and just thinking about the number of people that have come through the fall during, you know, the history of the band that I don't think that was, you know, they had to, yeah, they had to level up to where he was at rather than him trying to work with them is, you know, so that's just my th thoughts on it. Well, that leads me to then a question based on your knowledge um, of the band and everything. I, how would you imagine that track coming about? What what steps do you think it went through? If you, you say like with that idea that maybe the band pretty much trying to keep up with Mark. So how, how would how would they have started out down the road with a song like that? I think it's a little touch of that. There's like a, a reissue of Dragnet that came out in about, I want to say 2002, that has... A lot of bonus material on there, including the singles that came out around that time, which were the Roush Rumble, okay, and the early stuff. And there are uh, a couple of other takes of this song on there. One of them cool. is kind of, kind of one that they stumble and they had to restart it. But the other one, the music is mostly similar. It's a little slower. The drum beat is a, is a little different too. And so I think it's one of those things that they just like I. Um, Something that I always think uh, I'm always remembering about listening to uh, or watching a documentary about REM, and I think this is the same way that that Marky e. Smith and the Fall worked. Where I guess that the idea was that you know the members, the musicians in REM would just like jam and start working through stuff and working through ideas, and then Michael Stipe would be the one to be like, "No, do that. That's it, right there. Like keep you know running that again, and then sort of working the lyrics up to that." I think there might have been some of that with with the, the Fall as well. Where he was just like, you know, for the, the the biggest example I think is like them, the band around the time the Friends experiment, they were goofing around trying to play a Spinal Tap song, which Marky e. Smith had no clue about, and was like, oh, I like that, do that, we're gonna do that song, and so they basically <laughs> write an entire song based on the Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight riff. So, <laughs> so they yeah. just lifted lifted that riff and wrote a new song around yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I certainly get that um, as a general approach. So, uh, yeah, I can't imagine. Well, I don't know any other theories on how that. That's all I got. Do you have anything, Hiram? That I was gonna. I was gonna say exactly what you did. Was I think the band basically worked up stuff throughout the years, and then he would come in and be like, "Yes, no, yes, no," you know, like, yeah. or or if they weren't, he would fit lyrics onto it. Um, sometimes, and I, and I do agree with what Bob said about like seems most of the time that lyrics and music aren't really of a 
peace, although they just happen to be sometimes. It's kind of weird. I don't know. Yeah, I think but, it's, uh, I mean, it says everything that he never wrote any of the music for the band. Like, I think he could play an instrument here and there, but, you know, he left that up to everyone else if it's part of it. He just wanted there, to do both of the there, lyrics. There is that song, there is that version of uh, of uh, the Puritan one of Hey, hey Puritan or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where there, it's a practice tape and he's telling them, no, you got to... Like he's telling them the parts to the song. Basically, right. he's like, play this part. No, you got to play that part again. And, you know, you repeat that and I'll sing over the top or whatever. So there's right. definitely like, so that definitely happens. Yeah. I mean, especially I think it was because it was, you know, his quote unquote, his band. But I definitely, I, but definitely I think that most of them are just created by, yeah, the musicians working on the music and him coming in and adding lyrics, yeah. like pulling pieces of paper out of his bag or whatever. <laughs> going with well, that. yeah, very. That, it's a very organic process. Sure. In that, you know, if it follows that, and that's a great. I think that's something that we all appreciate from bands like that, when, because it leads to such um, amazing new discoveries, and you know, it leads to music that you haven't heard before because they they just followed their own instincts and personal mm -hmm. discoveries you know instead of uh instead of some known way of doing things so they they come across new new unheard of sounds i guess um you wonder like well did did the band just kind of fall into that because they had the time and the sense of adventure and i could relate to this because this would be like what what the embarrassments rehearsals would typically be like in the years where we just had so much time to spend in songwriting and in, in rehearsal that yeah you, you just you could go for hours on this one part start you know trying to shape it into something interesting and if you know one player or another experimented and fell upon you know an unusual note but you started to recognize that oh this is that sounds really cool maybe because it adds this tension <laughs> there it really it really pulls your ear in and you want to know like oh what's going on with that well then you figure out how much do we use that where do we use it where do we not use it and maybe comes maybe becomes a pattern um it's all part of shaping the song and i i wonder if that song developed naturally in that sort of a way that they didn't even have to identify like what chord is this who the hell knows what chord? <laughs> like, i'm playing this you're playing this he's playing right. this and it just sounds really interesting together and it and it becomes pretty much a, a, just a locked in thing eventually like we're gonna yeah that's how we're gonna play the verses no matter what you know how, no matter how many takes we do it but that's that's the way we like it to go and I always get the sense with the fall that they were much more about, you know, you're not playing in the key of whatever they were playing in. Mm. Uh, and then, I mean, at least in this period, I think they were mainly working crappy jobs, if jobs at all. And, uh, you know, they had lots of time practice. Um, but a lot, of, I, I just remember this one story and I can't remember exactly who it was. I think it might've been Stephen Hanley, but Somebody came up to him at a gig. He's like, it's amazing. Or it might have been Mark Riley. Uh, you know, it's amazing how you guys get everything to be kind of in tune, but not really in tune. And that's what somebody at, 
a gig afterwards came up to him and he's like that's that's not on purpose like what, <laughs> you know like of course <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I think that's what I love about this era of the fall up until I think when Bricks came into the picture is because there was that imperfection to so much of their music. You can hear the, the seams in these songs where, you know, mm -hmm. whereas I, I think what Bricks tried to bring to it is much more, you know, honed approach to it. And I think even Dave Bush, when he got involved, started to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly the last era of the band where there's mm -hmm. a very rigid rock band that was backing up Marky e. Smith at the time. They were definitely um, using a tuner in that version. Yeah, of the exactly. <laughs> love, it or, love it or hate it. It's, you know, they, they, yeah, they had a very, it was very much on the button the whole time. <laughs> so much of the early stuff pre-Bricks is so much looser and, and, and more fascinating to me, which is, I think, why so many people on the podcast have kind of uh, gravitated towards those songs, for sure. Early mm -hmm. songs? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, all, it's always the way. <laughs> early stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of early stuff, I, I, I'm going to make that as the transition to ask you about uh, the documentary uh, about the embarrassment, uh, which if anyone listening doesn't know, is a documentary called We Were Famous, You Don't Remember, which folks can, uh, can you check it out like streaming wise right now? Not quite yet, because they're still doing all these uh, individual city screenings. Right. And, and that, that seems to be continuing at least until the end of August. I, yeah, I see I it. Okay. You've got yeah, the, only, the, the tall grass film center in wichita you're doing one in next month yeah, yeah. they're bringing back I, I when i saw that announcement on the list i mean that now they've added some things like philadelphia at the end of august and, oh, and okay. actually, actually uh woody um our, our drummer in boston is telling me now they're they may be trying to put together a boston event for the fall Right. Uh, uh, and so I don't know what that'll do to the streaming plans because the, the directors had told us, they said, well, these screenings will just be for a while this summer. And then we move into the the stream streaming platform. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know if those things can overlap or if they keep doing individual screenings until they feel like they run out of steam. It may be that they've gotten you know, better response than they knew they were going to get. And so they want to keep doing these. I, I like, I mean, I know they said Brooklyn, you know, went really well. The, the theater was sold out and they, now they're saying LA was a lot of fun. There were, you know, great turnout of people there, which is surprising because we never had anything to do with, with LA. So maybe they're thinking, oh, maybe we'll keep keep going on that for a while. Our our thing here in, in Wichita in August is just that um, the Tallgrass Film Festival now has this ongoing uh, little micro theater that ah, I okay. that about why they announced, um, and it was unclear at first to me, but it turns out they have four days of uh, screening um, at the micro theater. As just as part of their regular calendar so um it, it goes over a weekend and we're able to tie in at least one live performance of the trio and you know whatever else we can do to help kind of cross promote give give people a reminder to go check out the movie if they missed it last fall or something so how did that 
come together this documentary were you were you and the rest of the guys in the band approached by the directors to make this happen how did this all start oh yeah they they tell the story really well um some formats but um for us it started back in about 2005 when the first director dan featherston uh who was in a a band at the time oxford collapse Mm. Uh, i think who were a bit and they'd even come out to wichita and met some of our friends and uh, apparently dan knew about the band and i'm not sure even how but it started seeming like an idea to him to to do something at least as um on the level of the um oh the documentary that the indie documentary that was done about um oh gosh now i Here's my terrible memory. All of a sudden, I can't identify the band, um, the Midwestern. Gosh, oh well, I, I dropped that idea. It'll but come he, to you. It'll come. Yeah, to you. he. Um, I mean, he'd seen a similar treatment. He thought he could do something like that for. Uh, he thought we deserved to have a documentary like that. Mm. He thought the band needed to be better known, and I, he started doing interviews, um, and he. I think he even kind of nudged us into the reunion shows that we did in 2006 with, with the plan that he would um, put a, a crew, a camera crew together and get really good quality footage of the shows that we would do in Wichita and Lawrence. And that would be part of the film idea. Hmm. Um, we were, I mean, we were, honored by the attention and just the, you know the whole idea that really you know somebody wants to make like a you want to make a whole documentary about the band and i guess it didn't take too much digging and or, you know, kind of testing the waters to find out that we could do some shows and that it would probably financially work you know i think that the main the key to that is usually lawrence if if we can connect with somebody who thinks, you know, uh, promoting a reunion show in Lawrence will, will work, will, you know, make, is it, is it worth the trouble for them and, and for the band, you know, can we look at it in terms of enough money where we can actually get the band together for a long enough time to, to, um, work, work up a show again because it had been a long it had been gosh 16 years by then mm. um we'd since we had played so we'd you know pretty much given up on ever doing that again but it that made us think that we could actually pull it off and everybody was into the idea including ron klaus at that point which was the last time that he was uh interested in being involved and so he, you know, he participated in uh, interviews then, and and we had a blast playing the shows. But then uh, this guy Dan, you know, as well intentioned as he was, he ended up having to kind of deal with real life and got a a, a film related job, I think, in New York City as an editor or something, and started just living his life. And he realized that that project had to kind of be on the back burner, and then. And then just it just got more and more pushed back, and it wasn't going to happen. At some at some point, a friend of his thought it was a shame that he had all this footage and nothing was happening. And and somebody, well, this friend, I don't know who it was now, but he actually did a rough cut 
he edited together a feature length um, version very roughly. Mm-hmm. And and Dan, I, I'm told Dan, you know, didn't think that was really what he had in mind. But, you know, he wasn't doing it. So he was like, well, I give this I give this guy a chance. He does his version. I thought it was really uh, I thought it showed the potential. I thought it told a good story. In fact, I, the way it ended actually was it was like a tearjerker to me. The, the way this guy put it together. I thought the ending of it was so sad mm. uh, that it was it was touching. And it made me think, gosh, this could actually the, the way he tells the story. It actually is kind of, you know, it it holds your attention. It's, it's kind of a, a roller coaster. And, um, but that wasn't the way it was going to go. And then all of a sudden the separate guy, just completely different Danny. So we have Danny, the younger ver- versus uh, Dan, the elder Danny <laughs> just came forward in Wichita. And by that point I was, uh, living back here then, um, in the mid like 2014, 2015 or something. And, mm-hmm. and, um, he he thought he was the first to think of this. He didn't know anything about the, the first Dan, and he started putting feelers out and talking to people. And, and he had this idea about a documentary. So as soon as you know he approached me, I was thinking like, you know, you should know about this other project. Well, it it also was a way of me telling him like, yeah, I, I'm fully supportive of this. You know, I'm sure the band would be too. But we have to tell you that we've been through this before, and we know that the reality is these projects. You, know, you start out with all this enthusiasm and might get going, but chances are it's not going to come together. You're not going to finish this. It's mm-hmm. going to, you know, fizzle out. Uh, but he, you know, he, well, he accepted that, but he eventually then just reached out and made sure he got in touch with the first Dan. And it was the two of them collaborating. By that time, I think it was getting to be close to COVID time. And, you know, they, they never actually met in person until the night of the premiere here in Wichita. They, they, <laughs> they, they finished virtually with, with him, with Danny in Kansas and Dan in New York, they somehow finished it. And that included redoing a lot of interviews because by then Dan, I guess he was going through his footage and he said, you know, now I'm looking at the stuff I did back then. And it's just that, technology's change and i'm just not happy with the um the quality mm. of the footage and, and then you know we don't we need some more like we need some important kind of anchoring interview like that's when they thought of including mm. um thomas frank the author mm. he was a late addition to the film and they thought oh this this was a great move because he gives such a good interview and he, he he's so smart and he kind of puts things together so well so I know they had a, it was a lot of work, but maybe the fact that it was the two of them, they weren't going to like quit on each other or something. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I'd say it's a miracle that they actually got the job. So you, you've obviously seen it uh, a number of times by this point, I imagine. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on the film? How do you, how do you satisfied? Oh, well, I, oh yeah. I mean, I could think of lots of different things I would have included maybe, you know, um, but I would never criticize. I, I thought it was just su- such a compliment to me and my friends, you know, that we we just were doing what we wanted to do. But, to, you know, that somebody that these guys would spend so much time and energy and, and work, you know, trying to 
share what we did, you know, I, it's just a really big honor. I think, you know, a really big compliment. So I, I, I just think it's amazing. Um, I've only seen it once. I had, oh, okay. in, yeah, every time recently that I thought I was going to get to see it again, um, I get bogged down in like, uh, I gotta, now I have to prepare to play a sh like I was in Chicago and I had to get ready to, to uh perform after the screening and we did a q a and then the same thing happened in lawrence when they were screening it there um i was in the dressing room the whole time just trying to get ready to play mm. so um i can watch it again i can watch it on my computer i guess um i have a you know well those guys make make it available to me but sometimes it's not like my highest priority either because it's <laughs> it, it can start bringing up idea you know i don't know thoughts about things that may not be helpful right, right. now you know i have to i have to keep moving on things that are happening right now and 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 i'm pretty busy but it is it's fun to watch the old stuff i i i i remember for a lot of years i've had the attitude i would tell people you know i i'm a fan of the band uh, um i kind of you know, separate from the fact that i was a part of that experience i'm a fan of the embarrassment i like i like kind of what came out of that so i can uh enjoy watching old videos or or uh, listening to some music kind of just as a as a fan mm -hmm. I think. Okay. Well, what, uh, yeah, I mean, there is a screening or something's happening at the, 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 the film festival in Wichita. Um, what comes next for you beyond that? Do you, do you have any plans for the rest of the year? Uh, musically? No. Well, you know, we'll see now we have to see if this, if Boston happens or if, if there's some kind of buzz going that could generate more of these types of events, um, I think everybody's just kind of leaving open those possibilities because we've had fun playing uh, for the most part so far. But otherwise, no, I, you know, I have I have to consider all that stuff just a hobby. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of what I get to do with if I choose to with my you know spare time um, or some of it. And that's that's healthy. I think, you know, I, I like playing music just for the enjoyment uh of it i and i i think i have actually do have more fun in the in the experience while doing it mm -hmm. than i did in those times when it was um an attempt to kind of like forge a path and you know get achieve certain goals and move move to another spot that that was a stressful time um and sure difficult to really enjoy it while it was happening for me fair that's fair well great you got anything else Hiram? uh i i just want to say i've seen the documentary because we donated some money towards it and i really enjoyed it a lot so when you played in 2006 we had just moved to portland uh, my wife and, I. and so i remember thinking well shit so, you know like we we missed that but uh but i'd seen like several of your of uh, like older clips uh 
where you guys are playing in the Flatiron Building in Wichita on YouTube and stuff like that. And oh yeah, um, so I, I really enjoyed it. Um, everyone should go see it whenever you can. The other thing I was gonna say, one of the things in that documentary is a story of all you guys going down the. It was Tulsa, right, to go see the Pistols. Yeah. So my high school English teacher was there too. So he was the one who got us a bunch of. Uh, I try to mention him as much as I can on the podcast. Yeah, I think we uh, hit the checklist there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miss, Mr. Bickham. Uh, he was the one who was always giving my friends and I like mixtapes and stuff like that of of ah. all kinds of music. But yeah, so he was there, and so it it just made me realize how much of a mecca sort of moment like those sorts of things would be like if the sex pistols came to anywhere near your hometown, you would just drive down and go do it, you know, like, uh, so I, I just, I, I think that's really interesting too. I just wanted to say thanks for taking some of your time. Sorry, we've kept you for so long, but it's been great to hear all these stories. Yeah. Oh, and, thank, thank you for your patience with me. <laughs> oh, no worries. Seriously. <laughs>